Hi, this is Kale Clark. Welcome to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. I'm so glad that you're with me today for this journey of exploring, understanding, explaining, and defending our Catholic faith. We ended off the last episode by talking about what fatherhood is really all about. And whether it's divine fatherhood or human fatherhood, and obviously human fatherhood takes its keys and cues from divine fatherhood, there are four things that are in common. So we looked at the first one last time. Fathers generate life. Uh, if you don't generate life, you can't be a father. We talked about, as Peter Kreef says, fish fathers giving fish life, cat fathers giving cat life. I guess dog fathers give dog life. You know, there's dog fathers and godfathers, right? Well, the divine father gives divine life. And that's grace. That's grace. Divine life. The very life of God within us. And that happens, of course, in baptism. Now, it's interesting, too, that there are spiritual fathers that God gives us on earth as well, in the form of our priests, our bishops, in the church. And St. Paul writes about this kind of fatherhood in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and he says this, I do not write this to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Uh, that's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, and I want to consult our 1 Corinthians series on the Faith Explained program in the archives. We went through that whole letter from St. Paul. So he says, yes, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, of course, Paul spent a lot of time hanging out with St. Luke, so I guess he really could have said to him, Luke, I am your father. But anyways, just as children imitate their fathers, uh, we need to imitate the great saints and fathers of the faith. That's why St. Paul says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. And so, how do our priests uh, become spiritual fathers to us? At the baptismal font. Because that is the womb of the church, as the fathers used to talk about in church history. We're born once uh, supernaturally uh, through baptism, just as we were born naturally by our human parents one time. And so, baptism is a once-for-all sacrament. It's unrepeatable. It's like uh, God signs his name on our souls, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with indelible ink. Just like when you meet a famous person, an athlete, you want them to sign a jersey, you want to do it with indelible ink. Well, that mark on the soul never leaves, even tragically for those who do not make it to heaven who are baptized. And yes, it is possible for baptized persons to uh, die not in a state of grace and, and not make it to the, the destination that God had planned for them that mark of baptism is still on the soul. So it's a sobering thought. It's also a wonderful thought to think that this is how much God loves us. He wants us to share his life with us, and he wants to share eternity with us. It's incredible. So this happens through the sacraments. It begins at baptism. It's strengthened through the other sacraments. Uh, when we lose it, we lose that state of grace. There is the sacrament of confession as well uh, to get it back. And so this is how we become partakers of the divine nature. And now let's look at the second thing. So fathers have to, number one, generate life. The second thing that a good father does is provide food for his family. And when it comes to spiritual fatherhood, when we think about our priests, there's really two ways that they do that. There's two ways that they feed the family of God. 
And that's number one with God's Word. A great scripture for Lent, uh, Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness by the devil. One of the things that Jesus said to him was, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So our priests, our bishops, our spiritual fathers, uh, they feed us with God's word, not only through reading the gospel, but also through preaching God's word and giving us those words of exhortation, encouragement, uh, just as any father would teach his family. And then secondly, there is the Eucharist, the food of the Eucharist, which is our super substantial bread. And this is what Jesus said in John chapter 6. Now, all of John chapter 6 is just a, a beautiful, beautiful source to go for teaching on the Eucharist. But I just want to look at a couple verses here. If you don't remember anything else about John chapter 6, remember verse 51. And there's two things that Jesus says in John 6:51. The first thing is, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And then the second part of that verse, uh, John 6, 51b, as it were, Jesus says, the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So he tells us what the bread is. It's not a symbol. He says, the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And Someone who would certainly know about this is Ignatius of Antioch. Now, Ignatius of Antioch was a disciple of the Apostle John, the same guy who wrote John chapter 6. So I think Ignatius had a pretty good idea of what John and Jesus meant by this. And that's why in his letter to the Smyrnian church on the way to his martyrdom, Ignatius of Antioch, one of my favorite saints of all time, he wrote to the church at Smyrna. He said the heretics have left the church because they no longer confess the Eucharist to be the flesh and blood of our Savior Jesus Christ, the same flesh which suffered on the cross and that the Father in his goodness raised up again on the third day. And that's in his letter to the church at Smyrna, chapter 6. So chapter 6 is something we need to remember. John chapter 6 and the letter to Smyrna, chapter 6 from Ignatius of Antioch, John's disciple. Eucharistic realism in the early church. It really is his body, blood, soul, and divinity. It's not some medieval Catholic convention. This is what Jesus taught. This is what he intended. And one more verse from John chapter 6, John six fifty three. Jesus says, If you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life within you. So those are a couple of key verses there, John six fifty one and 6, 53. And that's how our spiritual fathers provide food for the family of God. And so that's why we need valid priests in a line of ordination that descends from the very apostles that Jesus selected, apostolic succession of bishops, and of course the bishops ordain priests to help them because they can't be everywhere at once unless they can bilocate. <laughs> Some saints have had that gift throughout the ages, but you need to have a validly ordained priest or bishop for the Eucharist to happen, to confect the Eucharist. So... That's a real big key there. So that's the second thing. So a father has to, number one, generate life. A father has to also provide food for his family. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. We're going through the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, to see what we can learn about God through this sublime prayer that Jesus Christ gave us. So let's look at the third thing that a good father does. A third thing is that a father teaches his children how to live, teaches his children how to live, and also corrects them 
when necessary. All right, let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, starting with verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and that's in the previous chapter, chapter 11, talks about this hall of fame of faith, as it were, the saints of the Old Testament time. Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And this is the part we need to pay attention to here, starting with verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation which addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor lose courage when you are punished by him. For the Lord disciplines him whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time at their pleasure, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now this writer to uh, the Hebrews, as it were, He's writing to a church that's under persecution. Many of them have suffered the loss of their property. There have been all kinds of various persecutions. But he says, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You haven't been asked to undergo martyrdom yet in your particular case. But he says, all these trials and tribulations that you're undergoing and the, the perseverance of the saints that he mentioned before in chapter 11 should give encouragement too. He's basically saying that God is allowing this as a test. What the devil intends is a temptation for you to give up the faith, give up the fight. God is allowing to happen as a test, but he always has a purpose in it. And it's the same when Jesus was, was tempted as well. He knows what it's like to be tempted. Uh, Hebrews talks about that. And he says, look, we've had earthly fathers who discipline us. If they care about us, and they care enough and dare enough to discipline it's the same thing with God the Father. It's a, it's a time of testing. It's a time of trial, perhaps. But it is a way to teach and, and correct. And so this is what God does for us in our own lives as well. There's another scripture that I'd like to share with you on this front. St. Paul says as a great spiritual father in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he says, For you know how... Like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Those are beautiful words. And so that's the exhortation of the spiritual fatherhood of St. Paul. And this is really what our priests should do for us as well. So there's another thing that a father does, and this is the fourth thing. If a father generates life, if a father feeds his family, 
If a father teaches his children how to live, a father also, number four, protects his children. And we see this scripture in John chapter 10, and this is the famous chapter in which Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. And this is how he protects his flock. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not heed them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now, what's interesting about this is that when he says, I am the door, this is exactly what shepherds in the first century would do to protect their flocks. They would literally lie in the opening, lie in the doorway of the sheepfold or the sheep pen. So they were standing guard, or even when they were sleeping, they were on guard against the thief. And this is what Jesus says in the very next verse. In John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come so that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me as the father knows me. And I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Uh, This whole chapter is just a beautiful chapter, but just as Jesus lays down his life to protect uh, his flock from the enemy, from the devil, who he says comes to steal, kill, and destroy, the thief he calls him, uh, this is really what our spiritual fathers do for us too. And priests uh, should not be like hired hands uh, who are just doing a job, but they need to be true shepherds who will lay down their life for God's people. Shepherd after God's own heart. That's a great model. That's a great image to strive for, for priests and bishops. And also, of course, in the Lord's Prayer, we have that line, deliver us from evil. So part of delivering from evil is protecting from evil. So the false teachings that are out there in the world, those are corrected within God's house, the church. And then obviously, if you, if you look further on in John's Gospel, in John chapter 21, there's that beautiful, beautiful scene Uh, by the fire. And and it's so evocative because there's only two times in the Bible where it mentions the Greek word for charcoal fire, of course, the New Testament being written in Greek. And that's, of course, in John's gospel when Peter betrays the Lord in the passion, the passion of the Christ. He betrays Jesus over what? A charcoal fire. He's warming his hands by the fire, denies that he knows Jesus, curses him out. And of course, after the resurrection, he restores Peter as the chief shepherd. And he says this over this fire. They're having breakfast together in John chapter 21. Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John, and that had to hurt Peter too. 
He called him by his old name, you know, Simon. It's like he reverted back. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And so Peter gets to hear a little bit about his own future. Jesus then says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you fastened your own belt and walked where you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will fasten your belt around you and carry you where you do not wish to go. This he said to show by what death he was to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. So Peter, who rashly claimed that he would die for Jesus, uh, just a few moments later denied him. Uh, It was a little girl who scared him. Uh, He he didn't exactly have uh, the faith of a lion at that point. But after the resurrection, Jesus gave him the power to stay faithful. As G.K. Chesterton once said, you know, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And why would Jesus pick someone like this to be the first pope? Well, because it shows that the power doesn't come from him. He might have been the weakest link in some ways of the apostolic band, but uh, Jesus made him strong in the end. But, but asking him three times, do you love me, had to twist the knife a little bit, of course, in Peter's heart. <laughs> Say, oh, the threefold denial and now the threefold restoration. But that's what he does. Jesus makes Peter the chief shepherd of his flock. One flock, one shepherd, and the shepherd protects the sheep from error. So there we have it, the, the four tasks of a father, uh, whether it's a human father or it's a spiritual father. We have a father who generates life, a father who, of course, wants to feed his family, a father who protects his family, and he teaches his children how to live. So these four things are crucial. They're absolutely key. And so one of the things we need to understand is that, again, just as we talked about last time, divine fatherhood is the model for human fatherhood, for natural fatherhood, or the priesthood, supernatural fatherhood. It's not the other way around. We don't look at human fathers and say, this is the way God must be, whether it's a, a, a dad, a, a deadbeat dad that didn't fulfill our expectations, didn't do his duty, or whether it's a, a spiritual father who's gone astray and become a sinner. And sadly, there's been plenty of that in recent memory. So, The supernatural is where we get our cues when it comes to the fatherhood of God. And in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it it spells this out very, very clearly. If you want to turn with me in your catechism, if you have it handy, I want you to look at paragraph 2779 of the catechism. Paragraph 2779. I'm just going to read it to you here. It says, Before we make our own this first exclamation of the Lord's Prayer, and that's, of course, the words, Our Father, we must humbly cleanse our hearts of certain false images drawn from this world. Humility makes us recognize that no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him, that is, to little children. The purification of our hearts has to do with paternal or maternal images, stemming from our personal and cultural history and influencing our relationship with God. 
God our Father transcends the categories of the created world. To impose our own ideas in this area upon him would be to fabricate idols to adore or to pull down. To pray to the Father is to enter into his mystery as he is and as the Son has revealed him to us. Uh, That's an incredible uh, little uh, lesson there in the Catechism that we have to purify our hearts from bad images, paternal images of God that that aren't in coherence with who he is, maybe manufactured from cultural norms or, or from our own personal experience, to fabricate idols to adore or to pull down. I wish God was like this, or I think he's like this, because this is my, my human experience. No, no, no. We have to understand the Father's mystery as he is, and as Jesus the Son has revealed him to us. And so that, that is incredible. And this is what Tertullian said, who was a figure in the early church. He says, The expression God the Father had never been revealed to anyone. When Moses himself asked who God was, he heard another name. And of course, that's in Exodus chapter 3, when God reveals himself to Moses as I am or Yahweh. Tertullian says the Father's name has been revealed to us in the Son, for the name Son implies the new name Father. That makes so much sense. If Jesus is God the Son, there must be a Father, and that's exactly who Jesus reveals to us, especially in this beautiful prayer, the Our Father. And by the way, in talking about this, again, this is not a shot at motherhood. Uh, Jesus is in no way being sexist when he reveals God as Father. God the Father, remember, is pure spirit. He, he doesn't have a, a body. <laughs> uh, some uh, groups, some non-Christian groups like Mormons think he does. They believe in many gods. It's not the case. He is pure spirit. And so he reveals himself as, as father, of course. Now, we do have a spiritual mother as well, and that is, of course, the church. That's why the church is always referred to as she, the bride of Christ. And by the way, she is the reason the world was created. St. Cyprian said, and I mentioned this in our last episode, you can't claim to have God as your father without having the church as your mother. That's St. Cyprian of Carthage. She is our mater et magistra in Latin, which basically means she is our mother and our teacher. We've had a lot of mothers who are teachers and and taught us well, too. And so, the Blessed Virgin Mary is really the personification of the church. She is our spiritual mother as well. The mother of God the Son is a woman, just as Mary conceived the physical body of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, by the Holy Spirit. She gave the Word flesh. In John 1.14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the incarnation. And so she gave the Word flesh. Jesus has 100% of his human DNA from his mother. He has no human father. God wants to, in the same way, in a similar way, I guess you could say, to conceive his divine life of grace within us. He wants to conceive the life of Christ in us. And of course, we receive that divine life through our baptism. But Mary is always our model in the Catholic life. She's the model disciple. She said, may it be done unto me according to your word. And that's in Luke chapter 1, the archangel Gabriel. So she's really the one who lives out that line to the fullest in the Lord's prayer, thy will be done. This is exactly what Mary said to God. And there's a a wonderful book by Pope Benedict XVI, back uh, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, he wrote that book, along with the great theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, which is 
Mary, the church at the source. And I always thought that was a great uh, description of Mary, the church at the source, at the very beginning of the church. I mean, she is the beginning of the church. She is the first disciple. She is the ideal disciple. She always said yes, and she was the first person to say yes to God's plan to redeem the world in Jesus Christ and to participate in that, to give of herself to make that happen. And so, all of this brings us to a very, very important point. And you're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. We're looking at the first half of the prayer, the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer. When you read it, do you notice anything about it? Something that jumps out at you, or at least it should, is that the first half of the prayer, it's all about God. Your kingdom come. You know, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's the first half. It's all about God. The second half of the prayer is all about us and our needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation. You know, forgive us our trespasses. Deliver us from evil. So what's noteful about this is that it's the very opposite of how we tend to pray or how we're sometimes tempted to pray. We, we, we want to sometimes rattle off a laundry list of needs and wants to God, and in a sense, it's treating God like a cosmic vending machine. Do, do my will, O oh God, please. You know, At the end of the days, as has often been said and preached about, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Number one, those who say to God, thy will be done. And the second group is those who say to God, my will be done. And there is a place where, where folks go who persist in that attitude. It's called hell, and that's, that's why the theme song in hell is by Frank Sinatra. You know, I, I did it my way. Well, God doesn't ever send anyone there, by the way. People send themselves there by continually rejecting God and his fatherhood throughout their lives. And, and where they end up, it's the sum choices that they made throughout their lives. It's a continual rejection of the will of the Father. As C.S. Lewis said, the door to hell is locked from the inside. But that's not where God wants us to go. He wants us to go to heaven, to be with him there forevermore. Our Father who art in heaven. We'll talk about that in the next episode of The Faith Explained. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, topics you'd like us to cover on this show, why don't you send us an email? And you can do that by going to faith at relevantradio.com. That's the email address. And you can send me a message. We'd love to hear from you. We also have a Twitter account as well, at Faith Explained on Twitter. It's another place you can get a hold of us. And by the way, we'll be back tomorrow with a fresh new episode of The Faith Explained. We'll continue our exploration of the Lord's Prayer. Thanks for joining me today on The Faith Explained. I'm your host, Cale Clark. If you missed an episode, you can always catch them in podcast form on the relevant radio app. I'll join you in the next one, and I'll be with you later today at 5 p.m. Central, right here on Relevant Radio for The Cale Clark Show. Until next time, God bless you.